thank you, Karen. Very important stuff happening in the life of our church. Today, we are uh, continuing on in our, our teaching series we've entitled Gospel Fluency. And uh, our hope is for the gospel to be fluid in us. For us to be fluent in the gospel means that the gospel flows. It means the truths about Jesus, what he's done for us, and, and uh, what he says about us are not far away from our lips. They're, they're, they're welling up within our heart and they're flooding out. I want to begin by reading Psalm 43 here this morning. Uh, Psalm 43 is where I'm going to begin. And this is a prayer, or it can, you know, psalms are like songs, but they also are like prayers. So think of it as a prayer, and uh, listen to the, I want you to listen for the battle that's going on in the mind of the one who's praying, okay? And, you know, prayer can be really sloppy, it can be really all over the map, and as it, that's not a bad thing. But listen to the, the, the battle that's going on, and then also the transformation that takes place in the heart of the, the one who's praying. Vindicate me, my God, and please plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, and my God. Like I said, prayers can be like this. We start out fixated on our problems and we end up focused on God. In fact, we hope prayers are like this because often we do pray because we have a struggle or we have a trouble in our life and we begin there and we say, look at this problem. Look at this this, this struggle. And we hope that our, our, the passage of when we pray that that we'll go from this place of focus on the problem and doubtful about God. Did you, there's one line in here that really stands out to me, or two, this one line, it says, you are my God, my stronghold, why have you rejected me? It sounds like the guy who's praying is making an accusation against God, saying, God, you weren't there for me. I'm, I'm, I'm facing unfair treatment, and, 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 and I'm being oppressed why have you rejected me? Well, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing when you begin to pray and you begin to experience faith rising, focus changing from looking at the problem to looking at God and come to the conclusion that this guy comes to. He is, in the end, he says, after all this agonizing about, uh, about his being oppressed and God potentially rejecting him, at the end, he says this question to himself, Why? My soul, are you downcast? Well, he just spelled it out. But now he's saying, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So this is a wonderful transformation. The battle of the mind has been won in the, in the, heart, of this, in the heart and mind of this guy. It's been won. 
He went from doubt and fear and looking at the problem to looking to God, faith filling him, and praise and gratitude as a result. If only every prayer time was like that, wouldn't that be great? If you just know that five minutes after I begin to pray, I will go from doubt, fear, and worry to uh, praise and gratitude and, and, just, and, uh, and trust. Wouldn't that be great? And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't always go this way is because we tend to live our lives, again, in North America, this is especially a challenge, as individuals with our faith. We, it's really, a lot of times, uh, the fact that we don't experience a transformative time of prayer like this is because we, um, sometimes we don't begin to pray because we're stuck in doubt and unbelief. And the other thing is, sometimes our prayers are cut short because we just look at the problem, we just look at our doubts, we just look at our unbelief, and we don't go any further. And that's where other Christians come in. That's where other Christians come in. I believe, I'm believing this stronger and stronger all the time, that God is giving you what somebody else needs. And God is giving them what you need spiritually. And that God is not just, when he says that we're a body, that we're all joined together, he, it, this is not just some nice sort of metaphor. This is actually how we're meant to function. We're meant to function where one part of the body takes care of the other part of the body. And that everything is interdependent. And so I believe that God is giving, God will give you, does give you, and will give you something for someone else in the body and will give them something for you. But if you live as an individual and you never enter into relationships spiritually with other people, that you won't get it. And they won't get what you have for them. And so I want to talk about the next step in our gospel fluency journey. And that's not just that the gospel's in us. That's what we've been talking to up till now. Having the gospel flow out of us and, 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 and the gospel really being good news to us. But that the gospel being not just in me, but with us as fellow believers. Wouldn't it, be, uh, wouldn't it be great that every time you struggle, every time you struggle with unbelief or a lack of trust in God, that someone would just come knock on your door, walk into your, your life, and speak gospel truth over your life? Maybe truths you already know, but for some reason in that moment, you're not either believing them or they've sort of faded in their importance and something else has risen uh, to discourage you. Wouldn't it be great if that always happened? Well, I think we have to actually think about and strategize how we can do these things. How can we speak the gospel to each other more often? How can we do that? How can we speak the gospel to each other more more often? often. And, and I want to hopefully, today I hope this is a practical solution that we're coming at, a practical solution. So what, my solution is this, what if every time we're, when we're together the most often, what if every time we're together, we in at least some small way speak the gospel over each other? Now, when are you together with people? When are you together with people? I mean, together and actually in conversation. I'm not sit, saying you're side by side and just watching, you know, whatever TV show and you don't actually converse. I'm talking about when do you actually converse with people? 
A lot of people would say, and I'm just going to pick on this one today. This is the main one I'm going for. A lot of people would say that when I eat, I talk. When I eat, I talk to other people. Now, your life might be so hectic that you say, actually, I just don't talk to other people. I just manage my life. I just cope and, and go through life. I would suggest to you that if you're running at that kind of pace, you really should step back from your life and ask, why is it that hectic? Why is it that hectic? There has to be some way in which we enter into relationship with one another. And actually, God's designed it to be that way, so we want to experience the benefit that he has for us in that way. So let, I want to talk about eating. I want to talk about eating and how eating together can be a faith-building experience as we speak the gospel over each other. Now, let's go back to the origin of eating. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that in chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food, and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, it's not just the man, but he also creates the woman, and they're together. What would it have been like to eat in Eden? I want you to imagine what it would be like. Here's Adam and Eve, just the two of them. And they're, the Bible tells us they're naked, but not ashamed. That's totally cool. They have total privacy in, I assume if they're naked, that this is in a tropical climate. Right? And God has given them, listen to this. It says, God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye. Nice looking trees. And good for food. Wow. So God has set them up. It's like, okay, now, it doesn't, they don't have to go foraging for, uh, you know, roots and, 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 you know, and try to eat, you know, bugs and stuff like that. God has provided this wonderful environment for them. And uh, so I can imagine Adam and Eve going, wow, look at this garden that God has given us. Remember yesterday when we tried the apples? Oh, those were good, yeah. And what should we try today? I, I think with the bananas or, or the pomegranates or the passion fruit, Wow, how about we take turns feeding each other grapes? That sounds awesome. we got nothing else to do. This is going to be great. So it's like you eat fruit, and there's four rivers that run through Eden. Did you know that? Four rivers run through Eden. So you, you eat fruit, you go for a swim. That's how you, you know, clean up, I guess, from too much sticky fruit. And, and you enjoy what God has made. I would think eating would be, because God made these trees specifically for them. I could, I could see that eating would be a great time of faith. They say, Adam, God gave us this garden. He gave us these trees. He gave us this fruit. God did all these things. Isn't God good? And Adam says, yes. And you know, Eve, he gave me you. And that, that is such an, a, a sign to me that God is good. Yeah. And you know what, Adam? He said that all this was good. Yes, that this was good. Everything he created was good. That even we are good. We are created in his image. Yes, isn't that amazing? God is so trustworthy. We should depend on him. We should rely on him. We should trust him to meet our needs. Is that how your suppers go? It could go like that. Now we know the rest of the story with Adam and Eve. Even though they were, had the perfect environment to trust God, to remember God, 
because they could see what he had made for them right there to provide for them, to trust God and to obey God, they actually got diverted from that, right? A temptation came in. A lie came in. Did God really say this? Is God, God's holding out on you, Eve. And so the lie and the temptation came in, and now they, instead of eating something out of gratitude towards God, they ate to basically satisfy themselves and, and, and their disobedience led to their falling away from God, falling away from relationship with him. And that, the results of that fall linger to this day in all of our lives. Think about, so that's, that's how it could have been. Every meal could have been like that. How did Jesus eat food? He, there's another model if you want to say what it could be like. What was Jesus like when he ate food? I mean, there's so many Jesus with food stories in the New Testament. There's a lot of them. And it's interesting because you'd think if you were writing um, the Bible, if you were responsible to write the Bible, like it was your job or something like that, and it was your choice what you wrote. Now, that's not how it worked with the authors of the Bible. They were actually writing by the direction of the Holy Spirit. So they wrote what they were supposed to write. But if I was writing the Bible, I would skip all the meal times. I wouldn't talk about the meal times. I just write, you know, this event to this event to this event, right? But no, there's lots of things where, where the Bible tells us about Jesus uh, eating, right? It says that he ate with sinners. I mean, not just people who are, everyone's a sinner, but people who are noted sinners in the community, people that everybody thought were not very good people. In fact, the very religious people accused Jesus of being a glutton, and a drunkard because he ate with these people. No, no, not just a glutton and a drunkard, but also a friend of sinners. And the fact that he was a friend of sinners is actually true, but not the way they meant it. They meant that he, he was just as sinful as they were. But, you know, you could actually take that as a compliment, the fact that God's, God was gracious and kind and merciful and loving and compassionate to even those people who, who seemed to be the farthest away from God. But he was accused of being a glutton. Well, why? Because when he sat with sinful people, he didn't, they didn't say, hey, you want to share my food? And he said, oh, no, no. Oh, no, I'm fasting. Oh, no, I'm too holy for that. Oh, no, I wouldn't be caught dead, you know, or I wouldn't want to be seen eating with you. No, he dug in. He was part of it. He enjoyed eating food with regular people. So that's the first thing we learn about Jesus and eating. And then he enjoyed eating food with people. Then his first miracle happened at a wedding feast. So it happened at a meal, right? They were out of wine. He turned water into wine, his first miracle. And everybody remarked that Jesus had made the best wine. Jesus was known for the quality of the wine he produced on that day. Then there's feeding the 5,000. I mean, the sheer quantity. This wasn't just about the quality of the wine, but here it was the quantity of the bread and the fish. In fact, when he sailed to the other side of the lake after he fed 5,000 people, then the people on that side said, basically, if you can provide bread like that consistently, we'll make you a king. Jesus had a reputation for quality wine, for quantities of bread. He was having a meal when a, 
when the woman came to anoint him in preparation for his death and his burial. Significant moments happened while he was eating. And Jesus used breakfast. He used breakfast. In fact, he made breakfast. Jesus made breakfast. You think he just sort of floated along and everyone just fade him. No, he made breakfast on the beach while Peter came off the night shift so he could restore their relationship. Jesus used a meal to set up the atmosphere where they could be, be restored. And then we learn in the Bible that the future is about meals with Jesus. There's the wedding supper of the Lamb. So the bride is his church, right? We're in relationship with Jesus. And there's going to be a moment where that all comes together, Jesus and his people. But it's not just a wedding. There's a reception. Isn't that exciting? And there's going to be a supper. And Jesus said, I won't, he said when he was talking to his disciples, I'm, what I'm drinking and what I'm eating, I won't do that again until we do it again in the kingdom. So it's exciting. Revelation 3.20, I think this is one of the greatest verses of Jesus wanting to have a relationship with us. He says, behold, I'm going to say it in King James, that's how I memorized it as a kid. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, into him and I'll eat with him and he with me. I'm knocking on the door. If anybody opens the door, I'll eat with that person and have relationship with them. So that language of Jesus eating and the example of Jesus eating and the promise of Jesus eating with us. So how much do you feel like when you're eating your meal that Jesus is a part of that meal? You know, the most significant meal uh, that Jesus probably ate with his disciples. Can you guess which one that was? The Passover, the Passover. Let's read about it in Luke 22, 10 to 20. It says, um, I'm going to skip down here a few verses. Uh, 13, it says, They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. This is Luke 22, uh, 10 to 20. Uh, actually, I'm on 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostle, apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know that line where he says, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That would have been quite the transformative moment. Because the Passover meal, the Jewish nation had been, had been uh, celebrating for years. And what, what, what were they remembering? They're remembering how they were slaves in Egypt and God, through uh, Moses' leadership, brought them out of Egypt. And the last night in Egypt was especially eventful. 
Because that was the night where they, they were to take a pure, spotless lamb and sacrifice it and put the blood over the doorposts. Because that night, death was coming to Egypt. Death was coming to Egypt. The Pharaoh had defied God in every which way he could. And death was on its way. And so the provision for God's people was you put blood over the doorposts and as the death angel comes into Egypt to take the lives of the firstborn. This is pretty scary stuff when you think about it. It says you'll be safe because of that sacrifice. You'll be safe because of that. Death will pass over you. That's what the Passover is. So Jewish people who still celebrate this to this very day are thinking back that death has passed over because of what God provided. Well, Jesus, in this moment, he begins to change the script. Not change the script. He's actually adding the final chapter. Because all of this was foreshadowing. I mean, it was, a, it was an event into itself. It was real. It was God's provision. But it was, a, it was a, a picture of what was to come, how death was going to pass over those who've come to Christ, who accept him as the perfect sacrifice. And so when Jesus is in that moment and he says, when you take this bread and this wine in the future as good Jewish guys who celebrate the Passover and you've done it since you were an infant, next time you break the bread and share the wine, don't think of the lamb of Egypt, but think of the lamb of God. Jesus himself changed the Passover into the Lord's Supper in that moment. He changed it because that was the fulfillment. That was what it was meant to showcase. All, you look in the Old Testament, you read it, you'll see it again and again and again. All these sort of um, theologians call them types of Christ, but things that you go, you go, well, that's a cool story. Oh, it's not as cool as it will be. Once you understand that this is all pointing to Jesus. See, there's so many interconnected things that keep saying, you know, just like this lamb, Jesus is the lamb. And so Jesus changed. That was, the, that was probably the biggest meal, the biggest meal is when he changed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. And so today we often read 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, chapter 23. It says, and this is Paul saying, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. This is what spread through all the early years of Christian belief. And, and we have received 2,000 years later to this day. It's been passed on and passed on and passed on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You do it in remembrance, but you're also proclaiming his death. Now, the thing is, we are learning as a community. We're in this process right now, gospel fluency. We're trying to raise that in, in, in our church. We are in the process of proclaiming the truths about Jesus. Proclaiming the truths about Jesus. And we talked about first, speak it to yourself. Read the Bible and see the truths about Jesus and receive them for yourself. But now we're talking about speak it to each other. Speak it to each other. And, and, and Paul said, when you come together as a community, 
and you celebrate. The Passover turned into the Lord's Supper. This, this new, fuller understanding of what God is doing in the world and what he has done for us. You're proclaiming it. You're speaking out. You're acting out. You're, 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 you're giving a living demonstration of what Jesus has done for us. And also, it goes right into all the things that, because, that is true about us because of what Jesus has done for us. So back to the meal. What can we do about our meals? Now here's the thing. In most churches, they have communion once a month. We do that. We do it once a month, usually first Sunday of the month. And, uh, but I think the communion that they had back then was different. And I'm, I'm not saying we're going to change what we do. I don't think that's on the, on the bargaining table right at this point. But I think something should change. And this is what I think it is. The, this is a much more communal culture. They ate together more frequently as a culture. You know, like sometimes even in our own houses, we don't eat together. I'll say that about our house. Sometimes in our own house, we don't eat together, right? It's good enough that you made cereal and I had a Pop-Tart and, and you know, somebody else, you know, ate the leftovers from yesterday. And we, didn't, we did it all different times and now it's bedtime and we're done, right? There's no communal aspect to the food whatsoever, even in our own houses. And in Canadian culture, on a wider scale, it's even worse. Sometimes we almost never eat together. Now, other cultures, they've got an advantage. They're much more communal. They, they tend, the, the common meal, the common pot, or, or, the, or the big thing, a soup that they've added a bit more water to because a couple neighbors came over, that is more common. And so it's a little easier. So what I'm saying is that we probably have to do a couple things. One is we need to eat together more, and I'm not going to dig into how to do that, okay? You all, we all have our own challenges, and I, that could be a whole sermon in itself. But I'm going to go to the second one. is When we eat together, it should have a gospel flavor. When we eat together, it should have a gospel flavor. I'm talking about in our houses. If, if mom and dad are both believers, that meal should have a gospel flavor. In our life groups, if you eat together or even come together, there should be a, a gospel flavor to that. And I'll talk about how we flavor it with the gospel in a second. But all, and, and maybe there should be ways we find extra ways to spend time together and, and eat together. But let me, give you the, let me now give you my three very practical ways that I think we can uh, charge up our eating together with the gospel. The first thing is I think we should change the prayer. Sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Well, I think we should change the prayer. When, I, um, when my wife and I were traveling up to Saskatoon area, on, it, it was, this is an epic trip. We're going to meet our third son for the first time. Of course, we're, we, we adopted him. And uh, we were going to meet him in the home of the foster parents who had raised him from birth to age two and a half. So this is going to be a significant uh, experience. We were going to spend several days in their home. Uh, I think we ended up spending three days in their home. And uh, we stayed at a hotel, and then we would go and visit them, and we'd spend time interacting with our third son, Jacob, and uh, getting to know him, and also getting to know the parents. Now, as it, you know, it was amazing, because they happened to be another pastor and his wife. They were the foster parents. And uh, so it was really cool. Like, we, instantly we were connected, because obviously we have the same Lord and Savior, the same, you know, uh, God the Father, and it was really cool that we... Ha- 
already had that in common. And so as we're getting to know Jacob and as we're interacting with them, I noticed some things that I really appreciated, and I'll just tell you one of them because it, it, it comes right into this. Pastor Nick, Pastor Nick, the dad, the foster dad, he would, so we're in their home three days in a row. It's their family, Marnie and I, and two social workers. One social worker is ours, the other social worker is Jacob's, right? That's how it works. And so it's a big, full house of people. Well, every day at lunch, we'd have, or we'd have a meal together. And then uh, Pastor Nick would pray for the meal. And how he prayed for the meal really caught my attention. So how do you usually pray for the meal? Well, what do most people must say, thank you, Lord, for this food. We might expound a bit that you provided for us. That this is really great, and thanks for mom or dad or whoever made it. That's pretty much the content, isn't it? And if you really want to annoy people, you can pray for 10 missionaries, so they're just itching to eat. And you know hand squeezing goes on at the table, and people's fingers are hurt, and all sorts of things, and kicking under. You know, if you have kids, you know. Sometimes it's chaotic, and you just try to get through it, but... Pastor Nick, this is how he prayed. With our family, who he's just met, with his family, and with two social workers who I don't believe are, are followers of Jesus. He said, thank you, Father, for sending Jesus so that we could have relationship with God. really caught me. It really caught me. There is kids eager to eat. There's Jacob eager to eat. There's social workers who, you know, we're all sort of trying to impress in some ways and, and have good relationships with, and they aren't believers. And yet, Nick just cut through it all with the gospel. Now, I have heard him pray at other meals where there's no social workers in the room, and it's the same. So this wasn't a show. This wasn't a, oh, good, there's someone who, who, who isn't a, a Christian yet, and so I want to share the gospel with him through my prayer. No, this was his regular practice. Always thanking God for Jesus, for salvation, for all the different facets of what we have, all those things that we add up to what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So the first thing I'd say is change your prayer. Might, these are just suggestions. But I think they, they might be helpful to you. Change the prayer. You know where you normally go? Thankful for the food. Thankful for your daily bread. That's good. But don't forget that that's not all God provided for you. He provided you something better than bread. Better than your daily bread. And that is the bread of life. That's what Jesus is. The bread of life. God's plan to satisfy us was not just a physical plan, it was a spiritual plan, and Jesus is the better bread. He's the better uh, satisfier. And so let's not miss the biggest blessing that he's given us when we pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus so we could be right with you. I don't know. There's lots of different things. So take that moment, take that moment in that prayer, and think about all the things that are packaged into the good news of the gospel. And I pray that this will grow for you. 
that as you get more fluent in the gospel, as, you become, as it flows and it becomes more and more good news to you on the inside, that there'll be new facets of things that you'll be praying for and thanking God for. And your gratitude uh, will grow because you'll realize all that you have in Jesus. So that's my first one, change the prayer. Here's the second one. Change the content of the conversation. Change the content of the conversation. Now, this is really hard to do unless you have a real intentional plan for it, right? So if people come to the table and they want to talk about, uh, you, know, you know, bike riding or, uh, you know, school sports or video games or whatever it is, it's really hard to suddenly say, listen, this is a place for spiritual conversation. We don't want any of that fluffy stuff. You know, it's just not going to, you know, I don't know if that's going to work. But here's, we have given you a resource called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And did you guys notice? There's a whole bunch more of them out here today. And this is really good for families, really good for families. But you know what? There's actually another resource. Uh, I think it's called the Story of Jesus' Love for Us or something like that. Did I get that right? Pretty close. It's in the... Um, resource library we have out in the foyer where you can you can borrow from that resource library those are hand-picked resources uh, most often they're from our children's pastor and our youth pastor where they find a resource and they go families got to get their hands on these things and so they provide those things out there so take home a jesus storybook bible if you don't have one if you don't if you already have one don't take another one and make sure you don't take home two today because you know that we have a limited amount. Last time we had them out, we got cleaned out. So we had to get another shipment. Okay? So take home one of those, free, as our gift from you, but use it. And this is how I would use it. Use it at mealtime. At mealtime, say, you chat and you're talking. You say, okay, it's time to read this. See? And, it's, and in it is you're going to read through the stories of the Bible, but you're going you're to catch the foreshadowing that you often don't catch when you read the Bible itself. So the Bible is a big book, and if you read about the Passover in the book of Exodus, and then you, it took you uh, three-quarters of a year to read till the fact that Jesus said, this is really about me, you might miss the connection. But in the Jesus Storybook Bible, that foreshadowing is done for you. So just as you've read about the Passover, and you finish reading that, you're, then at the end it says, and by the way, <laughs> this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. I end them all with saying to my four-year-old, well, he's almost five, I say, and who, is they who are they talking about at the end? And he knows the answer is always Jesus because it is always Jesus in this book. But it's good for him to see that all these things are pointing to Jesus. All these things are fulfilled in Jesus. So that's something you could use. I mean, there's lots of other things you can use. I, I remember when I was growing up, people had these little loaves of bread on their table, but they were plastic, and they had little, anyone remember this? Anyone remember this? And then these little slide-out verses, you would read one every time. That was another good way of doing it. But just, just make it a tradition. We're going to read. We're going to pull out a little slidey out of a plastic loaf of bread. I don't even know if those exist anymore, or whatever we're going to do. Or we're going to read, we're going to do something together so that the gospel flavors this meal. So those are my first two. Change the prayer change the content of the conversation. But here's the third one and the biggest one and the one I want to I end my time with and focus on. Change the response to challenges that come up. Often at mealtime, it's not all, boy, we're so glad everything's going well. Often that's where you actually hear that things aren't going well for somebody in your family, in your life group, or whoever you're eating with. 
Maybe you're eating with actually because there's a challenge. Maybe someone said, hey, can we do coffee? Because I got to talk. So the challenge is going to come up, whether it comes up randomly or whether it's, that's the point of your meeting anyhow. But change the response to the challenge to come up. What's your natural response to struggles, mistreatment, bad life experiences? For a lot of people, when someone, and I, I struggle with this too, someone will come and they'll say, I have a struggle in this area, in this area, in this area. And suddenly, I'm pointing them to resources that actually don't point them to Jesus. I'm saying, oh yeah, you just got to, oh, here's a good book written on finances for your financial struggle. Here's, here's, a, here's a website you can go to about marriage for your marriage struggle. Here's, a, here's, a, um, here's something I learned about parenting for your parenting struggle or, or you know, whatever it is. But the question, there needs to be a question that we ask. There needs to be something that draws us into pointing those struggles to Jesus. Because all of our struggles, all of our struggles are in some way informed by unbelief in the gospel. Almost, I would say, any struggle you could possibly have, in some way, it's either, it is either a result of unbelief in the gospel or it's worse because of unbelief in the gospel. And so it's so important to keep coming back to the gospel. So here's a great question you could ask. What does the gospel, or how does the gospel bring good news to this situation? How does the truth about Jesus bring good news to this situation? Or how about this one? What about the gospel, the truth about Jesus, do we need to hear right now? Does this other person need to hear right now? Or here's another one. What about the gospel have we forgotten or failed to believe? Right? Sometimes you'll hear someone speaking and they're speaking passionately about their struggle and their, and their, their difficulty and you, you start to twig and you go, whoa, it seems like there's some basic truths that they know that they could put on a test if they were asked, but somehow it's not coming out of them and they just need to be reminded of the truth that they know. And guess what? I'm here. And I could do that. Or here's the last question. How is Jesus better than what we have or what we want? Because often we're talking about the yearning of the thing that we want that we can't have or we don't have or someone's blocking us from having and we want that so badly. And it could be, like they say, the ladder's going up the wrong wall. Even if we could get that, we might find out we're still very dissatisfied because the thing that real really will really satisfy us is over here. We're talking about Jesus. So how is Jesus better than what we have or what we want? So I want to read you a story this morning. I want to read you a story, and it's, it's a real, real example. It's out of the Gospel Fluency book. If you, has anyone been reading this book? I'm just curious. Anyone's, okay, yeah, a number of you have been reading this book. And you can buy this at the... Uh, the uh, Info desk as well. 15 bucks for this. If, by the way, if you want to buy the Jesus Storybook Bible for your like, grandkids who live far away or something like that, we'll sell you those too. We're, we really bought them to give out here, but uh, many of you have come to us and said, we think that's a great Christmas gift for our grandkids. So we'll sell you those too. 15 bucks for these, 15 bucks for those. 15 bucks, 15 bucks, 15 bucks. It's like a Pizza Hut commercial. All right. Oh, that's five bucks. Never mind. Okay. Let me read this to you. Let me read this to you. I can't stand my job. 
I've been working there for too long to be treated like this, she said. We had just started eating dinner at our weekly community family meal. This is like a life group. When one of our members started unloading her frustrations about work. I should have received a raise a long time ago and I'm still in the same position that I started in two years ago, she went on to say. My boss keeps telling me I will eventually get a promotion, but it seems as if I keep getting overlooked. I'm really tired of this. I'm ready to quit. She continued sharing her frustrations about the working conditions and the poor benefits and how her co-workers didn't help the situation because most of them had bad attitudes and poor work ethics. This kind of conversation is fairly normal for group life in a church and for life in community anywhere, for that matter. We struggle with work and we want a place to vent. Likewise, we experience pain and frustration in our relationships. Roommates get on our nerves. Finances are not always abundant or predictable. Parents wound us or let us down. So do children. We have plenty to talk about and often much to complain about. At times like these, we need to remind ourselves and one another that Jesus is better. Typically in a gathering like this, the initial response to our sister's complaints is additional complaining. I find that interesting. Let me read that again. Typically, in a gathering like this, the initial response to our sister's complaints is additional complaining. I know what you mean. My job stinks as well. You deserve better. Your boss doesn't know what he has in you. Maybe one day, one day he'll wake up and realize what an incredible person you are. Yeah, well, it might be too late when he does, because if I were you, I'd quit. A gospel community can do better than that. A community committed to growing in gospel fluency together doesn't respond like everyone else. We have good news to bring to bear on the difficulties of life. Sure, it's good to enter into someone's pain and struggle with empathy. However, we also have good news to give. I want to just pause there. I think this is really important. Don't hear this the wrong way because you you get off on the wrong track. This doesn't negate empathy. Right? When someone is sharing a real deep struggle, it's a great time to join them in, in their hurt and say, wow, I'm sorry you're going through that. And wow, that, that would be very difficult. And to, to empathize with them. So that, this is what we're talking about is not saying that you're just going to give a callous response. Um, I would say the other thing is it's, it's not indifferent about that things need to be changed in some scenarios. Right? Sometimes there needs to be a crucial conversation in a workplace or in a home or something like that. So it doesn't mean that those conversations are off the board either. But what we were talking about is the fact that often when we get to the solution side of things, somehow Jesus is not included as the solution. And how can that possibly be for a community centered around the gospel? When we say the biggest difference maker in our lives is what Jesus has done for us, and then when people present problems who are also claiming that very same truth, why don't we bring that truth to bear to that problem? We are called to grow in this. I'm called to grow in this. I'm not berating anyone with this because I've got the same challenge. Wouldn't it be great if every time a problem came, you were able to respond with the gospel. Let me back up a bit. A gospel community 
committed to growing in gospel fluency together doesn't respond like everyone else. We have good news to bear on the difficulties of life. Sure, it's good to enter into someone's pain and struggle with empathy. However, we also have good news to give. I regularly encourage our groups to ask these questions. I already gave them to you, but I'll read them again. How does the gospel bring good news to this situation? What about the gospel do we need to hear right now? And what about the gospel have we forgotten or failed to believe? And how is Jesus better than what we have or what we want? Back to the story. You're forgetting the gospel, another of our group members chimed in. You're forgetting what's true for you because of Jesus. I was encouraged when I heard this. I think we're starting to grow in gospel fluency, I thought. She continued, I know you might believe you deserve better pay. You are a good worker at your job. But I want to remind you of what we all deserve apart from Jesus' death on our behalf. We deserve death. When she said this, I remembered times when my children, while riding in our minivan in climate-controlled comfort, while sitting in reclining leather captain seats and watching a DVD on the drop-down video screen, would give in to complaints. I don't like this movie. She's too close to me. I'm too hot. I'm too cold. Roll up the window. At these times, I would often stop the minivan and ask them a question. What do you all deserve? Death, they would respond in unison. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, I would say. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But because of Jesus' death, we get to live not just today, but forever. You're alive. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for your life. Are you guys thankful? Yes, they would generally reply, while still mumbling less discernible complaints under their breath. You might think I'm a bit extreme, maybe. But it is true. We don't deserve what we have. We are so blessed, and it's amazing how easy it is to complain when we forget what we really deserve. It's also much easier to give thanks when we remember what we've received in comparison. I found that gospel thankfulness is a great cure for complaining. Let me read you a few verses, and then I'll get back to our story again. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. In other translations, it says grumbling or complaining. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do everything without grumbling. And if you do that, you are going to stand out in this generation. Grumbling and complaining is the default. That's where we go as a culture. Why? Because the only thing we can hang on to has been taken away. 
But for Christians, it's different. We, as Paul said, hold on to the word of life. We hold on to the truth about Jesus. We hold on to the things that are true about us because of Jesus. And because we hold on to those things, we don't have to complain and grumble. Our life doesn't have it. It doesn't mean you won't ever, but it doesn't mean that's our default. It doesn't mean we always go there. In fact, many times we go to a different place in our minds and in our hearts, and that's to the gospel. What do I deserve? Death. What did I get instead? Eternal life with Christ. If a person's not aware or has forgotten what they have, and you know because you're a Christian, it's cruel to leave them in despair when they could have had hope and great joy. So if someone's, if I've lost something or someone's stolen something from me and I tell you about it, you can show me sympathy for my loss. That would be okay. But remind me that I am a co-heir with Christ. Remind me that I am an heir of eternal life. And that no matter how impoverished someone else makes me here, they can never make me poor. I can never be poor. When I'm grumbling and complaining that someone's stolen from me, tell me what's true about me, that I'm rich and can never be poor. What about when someone mistreats me? Show me empathy for being wronged. That's okay. That'll be nice. But remind me of how Christ forgave my list of wrongdoings and gave me much more than I deserve. So, ma- so no matter how much mistreatment I receive, my primary identity will never be that of a victim. No matter how much people mistreat me, no matter how much people mistreat me, it will never come on this side of the scale and outweigh all that Jesus has given me that I didn't deserve. No matter how much mistreatment I receive, my identity will always be blessed. So yes, come around with empathy. Put your arm around me. Cry with me, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, remind me that I'm not a victim and that I am blessed in Christ. And all that can be stripped away is nothing compared to all that I already have. Let's end our story. Worship team, do you want to come back as I read this last little bit? The woman in our group continued, you you deserve death and hell. We all do. But God has given you eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're getting far better than, you, than, than any of us deserve. And don't forget the promotion you've already received, someone chimed in. We were imprisoned and enslaved under the rule of the devil, and Jesus not only redeemed and, def- and delivered you out of slavery to sin, but through him you've been seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Talk about a promotion. And that's not all another member spoke up. Your boss may not recognize the work you're doing. He might not build you up much with his words, but Jesus is presently speaking far better words about you before God the Father. Sure, it's great to get your boss's approval, 
but you don't have to have it because the God of the universe who created your boss is giving you his approval in Christ. And remember, the young woman who started us in this direction said, you have an incredible benefits package. Jeff says, it's actually fun coming up with all the ways life in Christ is better. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth forever where there'll be no more sickness or death or suffering or brokenness, I added. You have it better than you think. And don't forget how good you have it in Jesus Christ. And remember, your company's boss is not your real boss. Jesus is. Go to work for Jesus tomorrow. Work for him with all your heart as an act of worship. He deserves it. Let me read you two last verses and we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And Colossians 3.23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, would you make us, would you guide us, would you lead us into becoming great partners in the gospel? So that we could speak lovingly and truthfully into each other's lives the truths that we lack in those moments of doubt and unbelief. When we've got centered on something else, would you give us each other as a gift? And Lord, I, I ask that you'd help us to know how to do this. I, help, I, pray, I ask you to help us to know how to do this and to be brave enough to take the first baby steps. Even when it's awkward and you're saying, I don't know if this is what this person needs, but but I'm going to take a risk and I trust God and believe that he can use me to speak the truths of the good news about Jesus into the lives of someone I care about. Lord, lead us in this. You're a great leader. Our faith is not in our great ability. It's in your great leadership. So we need you. We depend on you. Give us the guts to step out in faith. And help us to, to love enough the people around us that we would dare to speak truths from you, the truth about you, into the struggles that they face. We ask that in your name. Amen. We're going to officially dismiss, but we're going to stay in worship. If you have to go, please go. If you can stay, please stay. And prayer teams, after the worship is done, will come up. And if you need someone to pray with you, we'd love to have you pray with you. So we'll officially say thank you for coming. But let's end with this, this one.